You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today. And as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. In Romans chapter 8, with regard to what our life in Christ looks like, what it, what it looks like to live the Christian life, in the power and by the means of the Holy Spirit. And so uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read from Romans 8, beginning in verse 10, and I'm going to read down to verse 17, if you'll follow along with me. Paul writes this, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin... The Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors. Brothers and sisters, we are debtors. Not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. This is the reading of God's Word. Well, as I said, we've been looking at Romans chapter 8, and we've done it for three weeks now, and the aim has been to grab hold of or see more clearly what it is to live the Christian life, what it is to walk in the Spirit of God in this life from the time we are a believer to the time we meet Jesus face to face. The chapter we said begins with these two great bookends, these two great promises. Paul will say after he wrestles with the sin he sees still present in his life, there is therefore, this is verse 1, now no condemnation, for those that are in Christ Jesus. And he ends Romans 8 with this other great promise that there is nothing that can separate you from the love of God. If you're a believer, he's saying to you, look, there's no condemnation for you and nothing can separate you from the love of God. And your experience in this life is to be lived with this this joy and this um, life overflowing of, 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 of life by the Spirit. And so we have been looking at this. The cross, we said, the beginning of this, the cross, it reveals two things about us. One, that God would send His Son Jesus to die on the cross. We are more loved than we could possibly imagine. And the fact that He had to send His Son die on the cross reveals that we are more sinful 
we were there once tonight. And so it is with that I offer an illustration this morning as we wrap up, thinking about what it is to walk in this life in the power of the Spirit and not in the flesh. Because if you're in the flesh and only in the flesh, you're not a believer. But those who walk in the power of the Spirit and put to death the deeds of the flesh, this is what we're aiming at. So I begin this illustration with my wedding day. I um, was married, along with Leslie, to each other, on September the 30th in 1995. <clears throat> and it is not so much the day I remember. It was actually kind of a blur. That's why you take pictures and video and all of those things, so you can say, oh, yeah, I remember that. It was the sitting in the airport, which is really my most vivid memory of that whole day. It's at the end of the day, and we're sitting in an airport, and we're waiting for the last flight out. At the end of a day, that was the most life-changing and amazing and wonderful day of my entire life. The day I was married. And sitting in the airport reflecting on the fact that just a few hours before that, Leslie and I stood in a chapel before all of the people we knew and all of our family, and there was a preacher there, and there were bridesmaids, and there were groomsmen, there was a cute little flower girl, and there was organ music, and there was a soloist. And her dad gave her away. We said vows, and we exchanged rings, and a marriage license was signed, and, and we were married, and she actually became... And then I Leslie Strader. And so everything had changed. And at the same time, I remember we were sitting there at the airport and we were waiting for the flight and we were eating these little boxed meals that somebody had prepared us because we didn't end up eating at the reception. And, um, and we were exhausted. I mean, you know, good exhausted, but we were tired. And I remember that having this feeling. We, I think we both did. We didn't talk about it for very long, but we acknowledged it. Everything had changed, but we didn't feel very much. I mean, we'd experienced a wedding, but we had no experience yet in marriage. So we began our honeymoon and began, you know, living out the very first days of what it is to be married, and it turns out it was far more challenging than we thought it was going to be. You know? I mean, the wedding was easy. I mean, being pronounced husband and wife was something that happened to us. All we had to do was show up on time and dress. And, and there was that, that happened to us. Now we were working out our marriage. We, we were working this thing out that had happened to us, like Paul says, with fear and trembling. So there are some parallels there that I want to draw about the Christian life. When you're saved, when by grace, through faith in Christ, you enter into a relationship with God, the Bible talks about it as being justified. It uses the image of marriage. It's very much a, a marriage-type event. It says you're justified. You're made right with God, which means if you're a believer this morning, 
your sins are forgiven and you are born again and you are a new creation and the old is gone and the new has come and now you have a new standing with God, a new legal standing. The Bible goes on and even says you were dead formally, now you are alive, you have been brought to life. Your status has changed, your position has changed. Everything is different. You're declared righteous just like being legally declared married. You're declared holy and righteous and blameless. And that is your divine legal status before God. When Leslie and I were married, we sealed that marriage with rings. We placed rings on each other's fingers and we made vows with regard to the ring. It was a symbol of our marriage. It was a symbolic sealing of our marriage. In fact, this morning I was getting up and I'd taken my ring off and gotten out of the shower and I was, it was, I was dressing in the dark like I usually do on Sunday morning. And I went to grab my ring and I never do this, but my ring fell when I grabbed it onto the wooden floor and then rolled around. It said, in the dark. And then I, the, the, and I thought, oh, I gotta find this. I mean, I'm talking about marriage rings. So I turned my iPhone flashlight on, and for 15 minutes, I am looking for this ring, which I found under the middle of our bed. Is under your bed dirty too? It might have just been the middle of the morning, you know, early before that. But um, anyways, I digress. When you're saved. There is also a sealing. A, um, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Rings are external. They are symbolic. They actually have no power. N nothing you can draw on. It's not like you know you get a Green Lantern ring, you know, and you, and that happens. Or, or like the Wonder Twin powers. Act, you know, we touch rings, and then you know we're in the middle of a fight, and we could just touch our rings, and everything would go well. It turns out our rings don't work that way. There's no power in them. They're just symbolic. But the Holy Spirit, that which seals you in your relationship with God, that which comes to um, make you in this relationship with God, the Holy Spirit is internal. The Spirit of God, who is also called the Spirit of Christ, who is also called the Spirit of Truth and the Spirit of Adoption and so on, comes to dwell in you. And that's not symbolic. God actually takes up residence in you, in your heart, your mind, your soul, your body. And the Bible gives us a picture of a, of a temple, and you are the temple of God. And, and God, the Spirit of God, dwells in you. And unlike the ring that has no power, the Holy Spirit is the power of God. This new life in Christ, this new life with God, this new life indwelt by the Spirit, this is what you are living if you're a believer in Christ. And we said last week, just to, you know, we, a lot of people misunderstand the Christian life, that salvation or justification is something that, that saves you, and, and it certainly does. And, and by saves you, though, what people understand, a lot of people understand, is meant that there's this door 
that's been opened to you that wasn't previously opened. And it may be that it's envisioned like this. There is this great wall. It is a great huge wall that you stand in front of, and it is too vast for you to be able to go around. It is too high for you to be able to get over. It is too thick for you to be able to get through. And some of us think, you know, well, listen, I, I, at least I got here to the wall. I mean, I've done all I can. I've, I've brought myself to the very, you know, furthest I can take myself. And now what we need is for God to open a door, to drop a gate, and to let us through. And so he does that. And we view salvation as this door that's been opened that now we walk through. Only to find on the other side of it that we walk through that door and we look at this steep, high mountain that's treacherous. And that salvation somehow opened the door and got us through, but when we got through, all of a sudden we found that there was a mountain that we had to climb. And the mountain's so high we can't see the top. It's up in the clouds. It's, it's, it's heaven. And it's steep, and it's treacherous. And so... Christian life is that we are now set to climb the mountain. And the Bible, we think, is our trail map. It helps us to know where to go and what turns to make. And so many people, they're initially so enthusiastic. I mean, they've come through the wall, there's an excitement, and now, man, we're ready to conquer the mountain that's ahead. But it doesn't take long. And you get tired. And you give out. And you scrape your knee. Or worse yet, you fall off the side and you fall, tumble down, and you break your leg, and then your discouragement sets in, and disillusionment. And the Christian life becomes an experience like this, a mountain that's too tall, too steep, too treacherous to climb, and you can't climb it. You've tried, and you've failed, and then you've tried again, and then maybe you've gotten a second or third or fourth wind, but the more you climb, the higher and steeper it gets. So let me press the analogy a little bit more. And then you realize that, listen, not only is the mountain high and steep and hard, life on the ground's actually much easier, much more familiar. And, and as believers, I mean, listen, we tell ourselves, because we know, we say to ourselves, well, this isn't as satisfying, and I, I know this isn't what I was intended for, and, and I, I know I'm settling for second best, but... It's easier. And I, I listen, I've tried to climb that mountain. Here's another way to say it. Believers, I, I believe this. Believe, if you're a believer this morning, you really want to live the Christian life. There is a wake in you, a desire for God, a desire um, for you uh, to know, and, and, and a desire that at times you long for it, at other times just a nagging desire that creates discontent how your life is and how you think or, or know it should be but you want the Christian life I also think believers want more of God that they want to know the fellowship of prayer and the an understanding of God's word when they read it and, and, and a life marked by peace and by joy a life that knows victory over sin and shame and guilt I mean, believers want to know the power of God in their life. But my guess is, many, many of you, you you've tried and you've failed. 
you've tried to defeat sin only to experience the failure of sin over and over again. You, you, you also have discovered the desires that are still in you, a desire for comfort or money or sex or popularity or esteem or significance or love or security or you know one or more of those desires. They, they burn strong in you. And, and then maybe you've tried to lessen those desires or, or ignore them or, or get rid of them. But you find that, I'll try as you may, they haven't lost their strength. So many believers, maybe many of you, have settled for, for a life of being as good as you can be. And you go to church, you keep up an appearance, you take your kids to Sunday school, you volunteer for a cause, you listen to the right music, etc., I mean, you've tried to live the Christian life, but you can't do it. You've settled for a life that feels more like this limbo. And if you're honest, you wonder. There are times that you wonder. Am I, am I even really a believer? I mean, you wonder if you've believed enough or done enough or improved enough to really be a child of God. And Because you know, I mean, you know down deep that your life is not the Christian life described on the pages of Scripture and, and that the power of God doesn't feel real in your life. And that you've settled because it's easier or you're tired or, or you know that there are things you're holding on to and you don't want to give up. And so, you're discouraged with yourself, you're disappointed with God, disillusioned about this thing called the Christian life. In 1971, there was a guy named Wilbur Reese. He was a poet, to my knowledge, only ever published one book of poetry. It wasn't very long. But one of the poems in there in 1971, Wilbur Reese writes a poem that describes his life just like what I was describing. And there's this honest appraisal of it. And this is what he says. I'd like three dollars worth of God, please. Not enough to disturb me. Not so much of Him that will change how I live. Not so much that I have to love a person of another color or pick beats with immigrants or change the way I use my body. I want happiness, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not the new birth. Just a pound of eternal in a brown paper bag. I think that's where a lot of believers come to. And, and maybe it's because, look, we, we don't think we can handle more than $3 worth of God because, listen, it, it means it mean we'd be out of control. And, and we like to be in control. And the bottom line is that we, we have to come to the issue of who is in control of our life. We like God being in control of all those things out there. Just don't like God being in control of all those things in here. Because we have this sneaking suspicion that C.S. Lewis was absolutely right in the Chronicles of Narnia. That God is good, but He isn't safe. Not 
not safe like we think or want to. That He will take us to places that, that, listen, we may fear. And deep down we do not believe that He will protect us and has our good in mind. See, I want to argue this morning, the Christian life can only be lived by the Spirit. It is a life of faith. And I suggest that the reason many believers do not know the Christian life as it is described in the pages of Scripture is because you've been trying to do the Christian life on your own, in your own power, by your own strength, by your own will. And I will say this. And you have not dealt seriously with the sin in your You have tried to live in your own power. You've tried to deal with sin in your own power. And you have known failure. Paul addresses this to the Galatians. He says it in Galatians 3, 2 through 3. Listen to this. Let me ask you only this, Galatians. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? So how did the Spirit come to you when you were saved? Was it by works that you did? Or was it by faith? The hearing of faith. Then he says, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? It's as though, listen, if the Spirit saved you, the Spirit's going to take you all the way home. The Spirit's going to lead you in this Christian life. It is the power of the Spirit by which you have to live this life. It is not yours. You don't get saved and they get handed the keys of the car and say, listen, I'll see you at the rapture. You know, don't wreck it. So I want to talk about the ministries of the Holy Spirit. Listen, there's a lot of ministries of the Holy Spirit. There are a lot of ministries of the Holy Spirit to individual believers. I want to talk about two of them. One of them is, we began it last week, that the Holy Spirit... One of the ministries, one of the primary ministries of the Holy Spirit to you is to show you, to reveal to you, to awaken you to the unsurpassing beauty of Jesus. And the second one is to show us the seriousness of our sin. The soul-crushing seriousness of our sin. Another way to maybe say it is that the Holy Spirit's ministry to you is to make Jesus so real to you and to make your sin so real to you. So, to argue for those two points, quickly, I'm going to read from John 16. I want you to see it. And then I'm going to talk about them quickly and then end with how do we actually live by the Spirit? John 16, 7 through 14, Jesus is telling his disciples just before he's going to be delivered over to be crucified, and he tells them, Nevertheless, I tell you, it is to your advantage that I go away. For I do not go away, for, for if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you But if I go, I will send him to you. If I go, then the Spirit, who is the Helper, can come to you. If I don't go, the Spirit can't come to you. 
And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father. You will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. And then he says, I still have many things to say to you, but you can't bear them now. And when the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. And then notice what he says. He will glorify me. For he will take what is mine and declare it to you. That word glory is an Old Testament word. And it means weight. Glory is a heaviness, a, a weight. When Jesus says He will glorify me to you, He will bring the weight of who I am. He will bring the, um, the heaviness of who I am. He will bring the glory, the beauty, the majesty of who I am and set it very much in the dead center of your life. And the whole idea of glory is weight. A weight and a and a presence that we can't get around. It's it, it's something. Listen, I can't carry it. But it's like Wilbur Reese. You know, what I mean, I don't want too much of him. Just enough, something to carry around in my pocket. Just you know, be able to to be around when I'm in trouble, so that when I pray, he'll hear me. I, I want enough of him around, so that I, I believe there's you know there's something after this life, and I don't want him to be glorious. I don't want Him to take up the center of my life. That's what the Holy Spirit is doing to you if you are a believer. That is the Spirit's aim. That is His aim is to put Jesus at the center of your life in all the weight, in all the glory, in all the beauty, in all the majesty so that you can't, you can't get around Him or ignore Him. So that you wake up in the morning and you're confronted with the reality that I woke up this morning and breathed this breath because of Jesus. And that no decision that you would make would be done apart from Him or what He thinks or what He might be leading you to. And the Spirit wants you to know more than anything beauty and majesty and glory and sacrifice of the eternal Son of God. Paul says it this way, now the, Spirit, now the Lord is Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And that's great. But what does that freedom mean? And we, who with unveiled faces, believe all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into His likeness with ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. What the Spirit does is first to bring us the glory of God in Christ Jesus. He takes Jesus from the periphery of your life 
and brings him to the very center. So what we can't say is, look, I, you know, I like Christianity. It enriches my life. It helps me. You know, it helps me here and there. Because Jesus is not a self-help book. The Spirit of God seeks to make him the very heavy, glorious center of life. Now, J.I. Packer gives this illustration in his book, Keeping the Step of the Spirit. Listen to how he says it. He says, I remember walking into a church one winter evening to preach the words, He shall glorify me. That's what we just read in John 16. And seeing the building floodlit as I turned around the corner and realizing that this was exactly the illustration my message needed. When floodlighting is well done, the floodlights are so placed that you do not see them. In fact, you're not supposed to see them. You're supposed to not see where the light's coming from. What you're meant to see is just the building on which the floodlights are trained. This perfectly illustrates the Spirit's new covenant role. He is the hidden floodlight shining on Jesus in the world. There to show you the glory of God through Jesus. That's why Paul will say here in Romans 8, set your mind on the things of the Spirit, and the things of the Spirit are the beauty of Jesus. Okay. Now, that is what the Spirit is doing and is aiming at. And we are to cooperate with, yield to, not resist, not grieve, not quench. All these things are said about the Spirit's operation in our life. But the thing that grieves and quenches and causes us to ignore and keeps us in our life as believers running away from Jesus being the center is what Paul will say in Romans 8, verse 13. And that is the sin in our life. Look at what he says in Romans 8, 13. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. What Paul is talking about, this putting to death the deeds of the flesh, if you have the old King James Version this morning, one, good for you. You see the word mortification. Mortify the deeds of the body. Mortify the sin. Be killing the sin in your life. Because if you're able to do that, by the power of the Spirit, not in your own power, you will then know, experience, have the great assurance of everything else Paul is going to say in Romans chapter 8. And if you don't, if as a believer you let sin linger, you live with sin in the middle of your room, you will know a life
life of misery. You will not know the power of the Spirit of God. You will not know communion and fellowship with Christ. You will live a miserable existence on this planet. And so what Paul is encouraging and exhorting, of all the promises, he says, there are promises after promises after promises in Romans 8. And the key for you to experience you would be putting to death the deeds of the body, the sin that exists in you, that is still present in you, by the power of the Spirit. How do you grow? You grow by killing the sin in your life. And this floodlight ministry of the Spirit comes to show and highlight and cast a floodlight on the sin that remains present in your life. Now, you say, Ross, I know what that sin is. I'd say you probably know a little bit of what that sin is. Well, listen, I've tried that before. You've probably tried it in your own strength and in your own will and in your own resolve and by your own penance you've been going through the motions to try to get rid of that thing, to try to ignore it, to try to keep it from coming up. And, and, and yet, while we are involved in the killing, we have to be engaged in the war of the killing of the sin. We cannot do it in our own power. We must do it by the power of the Spirit. Now, I, I want to do two things. I want to read a couple of quotes from a man named John Owen who lived in the 1600s who thought maybe more deeply about this than anybody has thought and wrote the most helpful book I have ever read and most theologians will say has ever been written on this topic. And it is entitled The Mortification of Sin by John Owen. And I commend it to you. It's not an easy read, but it's a worthwhile read. But listen to what he says. I'm just going to read some of this, all right? Then I'm going to wrap it up with how do we actually do this. Here is John Owen. Almost 350 years ago. Are you ready? Do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. You're being dead with Christ virtually in your salvation. And being quickened with Him, having died with Him and being raised with Him, will not excuse you from this work. Indwelling sin always abides while we're in this world. Therefore, we must always be mortifying. He goes on. Sin is not merely only abiding. It's also acting. Acting. It's laboring to bring forth the deeds of the flesh. When sin lets us alone, we may let sin alone. But as sin is never less quiet than when it seems to be most quiet, and its waters are for the most part deep when they are still, so ought our contrivances against it be vigorous at all times and in all conditions even when there is least suspicion. 
but sin always aims at the utmost. Every time it entices you, every time it tempts you, it wants to go to the utmost. And nothing can prevent it except its mortification. The withering of the root and the striking at the head of sin every hour so that whatever it aims at, it is crossed There is not the best saint in the world, but if he should go over this duty, would fall into as many cursed sins as ever any did of his kind. No one's safe. No one is safe at any time from the presence of sin in your life because you have an enemy that is waging war against you all the time and doesn't desire to merely tempt you, doesn't desire to merely cause you to look this way or cause your heart to desire this thing. He desires to take you to your utter ruin with sin all the time. In every area that He can. Where sin, through the neglect of mortification, gets a considerable victory, it breaks the bones of the soul. It makes a man weak and sick and ready to die so that he cannot look up. And when poor creatures take blow after blow, wound after wound, foil after foil, and never rouse up themselves to a vigorous opposition, and they expect anything, but to be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin and that their souls should bleed to death. This, I am afraid, is the case for so many believers. A a few cursory confessions here and there of the bad thing I said or the person I cut off or the person I walked by and ignored, I, I feel bad about that and I confess it. I was rude to my kids and pretended I was asleep when I wasn't. And so we have fooled ourselves into thinking we have dealt with the sin in our life. And yet we have not gone to the root. We have not cut off there is a vast ocean of darkness that waits to swallow us up. Do you get the sense? Do you see what I'm saying? Sin is serious. And just because you're a believer, just because you've died with Christ and been raised with Christ, does not mean you will not fight against sin your entire life, all your days. He only is sufficient for this work. All ways and means without Him are as a thing of naught. And He is the great efficient of it. 
He works in us as He pleases. It is still an act of obedience on our part, but it is the Spirit of God working in our life by His power, and our obedience is only the means by which we access what the Spirit is doing. One more quote, and then I'll wrap this up. Suppose a man to be a true believer, or woman, and yet finds in himself a powerful indwelling sin, leading him captive to the law of it, consuming his heart with trouble, perplexing his thoughts, weakening his soul as to the duties of communion and fellowship with God, disquieting him, as to peace, I just can't have peace, and perhaps defiling his conscience, and exposing him to hardening through the deceitfulness of sin. What shall he do? Suppose you find yourself there this morning. Suppose this morning you hear from the Spirit of God, and He is bringing not only the weight of God's glory and the beauty of Jesus to the front of your life, He is crushing you with the weight of sin in your life. What are you to do? What course shall he take and insist on for the mortification of this sin? And though it not be utterly destroyed, yet in his contest with it, he may be enabled to keep up power, strength, and peace in communion with God. Here's what he's saying. You're going to battle sin your whole life. There's a power in the Holy Spirit operating in you that as you are obedient to mortify sin, to put sin to death, to strike it at its root, the Spirit of God, He works in you and for you. That even though your battle sin and even though the presence of sin will be there, and even though you're going to stumble, and even though you're going to fall, you won't give up the battle so that you, you won't lose your peace, you won't lose your fellowship, you, you won't lose your assurance of the love of, that God has for you. And you stop battling it, or you ignore it. Or, or you, rather it comes and you go, oh gosh, I feel really bad about that, and so then you, you go through your gyrations to try to get it off your conscience and to get it out of your mind. And you think that's confession. You think that's mortification. You think that's repentance. And it's not. It's the height of self-righteousness. It is the height of self-love. It says, I care more about me and not feeling the effects of this sin than I do the offense that it is to God. And we do that all What do we do about sin? The primary reason for salvation is not to take us somewhere, but to make us like someone. I'm going to give you six things real quick. You battle sin in your life by faith in the power of God working in you. 
and then you fight like crazy against it. Here's one thing you have to believe. You believe that He alone, that the Spirit of God alone clearly and fully convinces the heart of the evil and guilt and danger of the corruption and sin in the world. Which means it is not merely saying when sin comes along and you go, gosh, wish I didn't do that because that, man, that really, that really upsets me or that makes me feel bad or that keeps me from making the progress I want or it upset a relationship or... That's not feeling the weight of it. That's feeling the inconvenience of it or the discomfort of it. Feeling the weight of it is sitting under the ministry of the Holy Spirit and feeling the conviction of what sin is at its root. The high offense to God is not merely your inconvenience. Sit in it for a minute. You might have to say, listen, I trust that I can't bring myself to this conviction, but Holy Spirit, will you convict me? You convict me. You bring me. You help me see the seriousness of my sin so that I don't shortchange this deal and run away just because I'm inconvenienced. That I would be brought low to a place of repentance and confession. And I would, I would, by your power, strike it down at its root as it comes up over and over and over and over again. People think, Christian life is why I've confessed that sin. I got rid of it. Now, you know, I'm just waiting for the next one to happen. No, you'll be a master at one or two of them. But you'll battle your whole life. Here, all right, that's the first thing. Fully convinced that he's the one that brings that conviction. Secondly, you have to believe by faith that the Spirit alone reveals to us the fullness of Christ as the solution to our problem. Believing that it is the fullness of Christ, that all Christ is, all that He is, at the right hand of the Father and in me, that He's enough and sufficient. Thirdly, that we believe the Spirit will bring to us an eager, expectation that Christ will relieve this power of sin. That He convicts us. That He's enough. That He will. And then we ask the Spirit to bring the cross of Jesus to our minds that we would linger in our imagination, in our soul, in our spirit, in our heart, in our mind, in the brutal sacrifice of Jesus. Because it is the only power to kill sin. We believe that the Spirit is the author and finisher of our faith. He supplies all the grace we need, all the power we have, and finally, that in this condition, in this working of the Spirit, we always are able to draw 
upon the support of the Spirit for the love of Christ, for the glory of God, that nothing, nothing, nothing separates us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Guaranteed. We must go to God in faith that He is able to meet these needs. We must suffer the conviction of sin. Repent of sin. Strike it at its core and do this over and over and over. And you know what the reward is? The reward is grace and peace and life and crying out as a child, Abba, Father. And knowing what it is to be the very child of the God who loves you. That is progress in the spiritual life. That is life in the Spirit. Waging war against sin as the Spirit shows up and is the power Oh, there's more to say. I pray you'd read the rest of Revelation or Romans chapter eight. Read Revelation eight too, for that matter. But that you would know what it is to walk in the Spirit. If you would, would you bow with me as we pray? Father, we thank you for the time. I thank you for your word.